0: Just a quick reminder that I do now have a second podcast called Track Nerds, where I have guests on to discuss travel, exercise, and movies and TV. Check it out. Okay, enjoy the show. So with Letters for Iwo Jima, what I thought was interesting is we're always kind of debating, you know, how much should they get right how much did they change and this is kind of an interesting mix from what i found in that the events of what happened on the island in and of themselves seemed pretty darn accurate but the whole idea of them finding a cache of letters in 2005 i actually couldn't
1: find evidence of that being true could you uh no and so i I mostly focused on just kind of the overall Pacific theater of World War II. I didn't really look into this, but that's what I was going to actually ask you about. How how historically accurate was it? Are those characters, are they the actual Japanese generals and admirals and lieutenants and stuff that were on Iwo Jima.
0: Okay, so yeah, we can get it. So the story in the film and a lot of the events of what was going on is based on letters that the Japanese wrote home at the time. But my understanding is those letters were delivered and the ones they used were the ones they actually found on mainland Japan with the families as opposed to being lost and then dug up 60 years later. Now, as far as the characters, so the main guy they focus on outside of Ken Watanabe's character, but like the the main like baker guy who's forced into conscription and you know taken away from his wife and stuff. He seems to be fictional and just kind of used as a proxy. Right. But but the main general Ken Watanabe's character is real. Oh, okay. He has his own Wikipedia page, so I would I would assume so. Correct. And <laughs> and the, and also the the Olympian, basically everything with the Olympian was true. Okay. Even down to being friends with Douglas Fairbanks and Mary Pickford, like that was all true. Takeshi Nichi. Yes, yes. What, huh. what was the 1932 Olympic champion in the, uh, oh, I've, some equestrian competition. I you know, basically like jumping fences or it was, it was something, it was basically show horsemanship. And anyway, yes, he was an Olympic gold medalist though. The Olympics were in LA in 1932 and he did hang around with not just the two people he mentions in the film, but also Charlie Chaplin. And he was legit pals with like, because he was in LA for the summer. They thought he was kind of this cool, you know, this Japanese guy that's there for the Olympics. And they thought he was cool and they all just kind of yeah. hung out. And so like when he's then, you know, 13 years later in the war, that that's accurate. And actually that's, that's kind of how he got in the horse thing in general. So he did kind of, we'll go and talk about him first. So he was technically a bastard, but still his dad was a baron. And when his dad died, he actually still got that Baron rank and everything. So he's basically from a well-to-do family, which is, of course, why they had the money for him to be in horses and all that. And he did get into the the military, was in like cavalry units, and was definitely tied in with all the horses there. And then kind of got into the horse riding stuff while in the military and then was able to, like, take a break to go and participate in the Olympics for, you know, the glory of the country and everything and hang out hang out there for a while. And then before coming back, but and then staying in the military, eventually, yes, ending up in charge of the tanks on Iwo Jima. Like, that was all, all accurate. So framing the story itself, it is, uh, as we kind of hinted at, it's bookended by this discovery. These archaeologists, Japanese archaeologists, are kind of going over the island Excavating it like you would any historical site, and they dig up a big bag of. Actually, they don't actually show that it's letters at the beginning. We just see them. Oh, hey, I found something, and they start to dig something up, and then we flash back to 1945, and they're preparing for the American invasion of Iwo
1: Jima. Did you look into a little more of that
0: stuff? Then, like the whole island hopping stuff. Do you want to get into that? Yeah. So the
1: island hopping campaign, it was like a an idea. They also called it. The, uh, the cartwheel, it was uh, kind of the brainchild of General Douglas MacArthur and Admiral William Bull Halsey. So after Pearl Harbor, um, they basically devised a strategy to capture these Pacific islands, turn them into airfields and naval bases you know, that they could use to then get to the next island and the next island and so on and so forth. And so from 1942 uh, in Guadalcanal through Tarawa and Guam... And Saigon, which I think they mentioned in the movie, they talk about the American fleet leaving Saigon before Iwo Jima. Oh, that's right, yes. The campaign had multiple prongs. You know, it's not just like a straight line, island to island. There's, you know, multiple prongs of this movement, uh, including battles in the Aleutian Islands of Alaska, um, battles in the Philippines. Um, That's kind of the, the western side of the island hopping campaign. And then, you know, culminating with Iwo Jima and Okinawa right before the atomic bombs were dropped in 1945. But basically at the beginning of the war, the plan was just island, you know, hop island to island until you get to mainland Japan which the japanese thought was going to be the case um and even most americans thought was going to be the case that you know there was going to be a a kind of normandy invasion 2.0 that was going to take place on the island of mainland japan that was the uh the intent at the beginning of the war anyway
0: yeah and that that seemed to be even the the japanese intent until it wasn't basically right so oh so here's something actually i'm not familiar with so What kind of resistance were the allies meeting with in the Pacific? So as we're going island to island, are we pretty much like, yeah, we're fighting, now we're losing soldiers, but, like, do we lose any of these battles as we're island hopping, are we pretty much just kind of going from one to the next, and yeah, it takes a while, but we're kind of winning every time?
1: Right, so we're victorious pretty much every time, but, like, hard-fought, like, nasty guerrilla battles, just like you see in the movie, you know, these guys are like, I'm here for the emperor to die for my country. Right. If we lose this island, the Americans are going to use it to basically set up their base to attack us. So, you know, we're down to the last man, however many thousands of us there are on this island. We will all die before we give up. Right. The Japanese always saw surrender, surrender as shameful. Even if it
0: is, you're the last person left and there's a thousand Americans outside. That doesn't matter. You don't surrender. It was kind of right. their, their mentality. So yeah, so we see them on the island preparing for the battle and you kind of then do get the, obviously this is kind of one of the last ones near the end. So morale isn't really high, but they do still have the pride. So they're still going to do their job. And early on we see, I guess I should say, try to pronounce his name. Um, how do you say Watanabe's character name here? Oh, uh, Tadamichi Kuribayashi. Wow. Bravo. I'm just going to cut and paste that <laughs> to use every time here. <laughs> uh, Kur- Kuribayashi. Is that close enough? Okay. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. So, early on, we see him show up, and it it sounds like they got him pretty accurate. Like, the, the, and that's why we should mention here early on. So, this is an American production directed by Clint Eastwood, but the Japanese loved and really appreciated this movie. And it was financially way more successful over there than it was over here. They had had a lot of beef with previous movies that depict, you know, Japanese people because they either not hire Japanese actors. So the accents were all wrong or just a million different things just weren't authentic. But Eastwood made a point of hiring Japanese actors and just getting everything right, having Japanese consultants. And so, and and they also felt like, you know, the Japanese weren't vilified in this movie. They were truly getting a chance to speak their side of the conflict and weren't dehumanized in any way. And so I thought it speaks very highly of the film that the Japanese respected uh what Eastwood did as an American here and almost to a shocking degree like they couldn't
1: believe that an American made yeah. this movie that kind of so honored their fall here and he had a the uh the writer is uh the screenwriter is a Japanese American as well yes yes which I, I I didn't really tree don't think about that ahead of time I think it's her I, I think it's a, a woman actually oh nice uh yeah so she she got nominated for uh for an Oscar for this okay and I kind of even vaguely remember that I guess of course this has been over a decade ago but yeah, you're absolutely right. The uh, inclusion of cast members and a screenwriter and I'm sure a sizable chunk of production crew you know, that are Japanese, it helps tell both sides of the story. And this is also kind of a not really a sequel, not really a companion piece, but well, I guess companion piece. Right? I think
0: that's yeah, that's the term I would use.
1: Yeah. To uh, Flags of Our Fathers, which is. That's like about the Americans, though. Like that's about Marines doing the island hopping campaign, whereas this is about the Japanese soldiers. Right, but
0: yeah, the so definitely a companion pieces, both kind of about this conflict and filmed kind of back to back by Clint Eastwood. So kind of kind of a neat thing. And again, you know, I've just kind of we've been familiar with it since it began. But you know, a lot of people since this has been you know thirteen years ago may not realize that yeah, Clint Eastwood did back to back movies about Iwo Jima, one from the American side, one from the Japanese side, and pretty universally the japanese side here in letters for Mimojima is considered the far superior film and right was i mean oh shoot i kind of actually didn't look up all that but it was
1: nominated for best picture right um yeah it was nominated for best picture clint eastwood got nominated for best director uh it got a screenplay nomination um it looks like it won a best sound editing okay yep academy award but yeah it was it was nominated for for, yeah, Best Picture, Best Director, and, and Screenplay as well. And won the Golden
0: Globe for Best
1: Foreign Language Film. Right.
0: Okay. So, uh, yes. So they seem to have gotten uh, the, the character of the main general here pretty much correct. He was, I guess if you could mean, like, non-reactionary. He was just kind of very, very disciplined, but also kind. And even though they kind of do have these strict, you know, rules within the Japanese military on, you know, honor and, you know, personal sacrifice, he... I don't want to say he was lax because he definitely wasn't lax. Everyone respected him. Everyone did what he said. Although, and I didn't see what the historical accuracy of this was, but because he had been to the United States before, which again is accurate. This general did spend time in the United States in the late twenties, early thirties. So some of the other commanders didn't necessarily trust him. They thought he might've been conflicted or because he admired the Americans, he was somehow not going to try his hard his hardest to beat them. But obviously all that was, not what we see from him actually in the film. He was he was doing his darndest and actually made a point of whatever the men suffer, I will suffer. And I saw that actually in, in the history there too, where if you know the men are getting less rations, I'm getting less rations. And he says a couple times in the movie, I will always be in front of you. So whatever battle we're going into, I'm gonna be taking it first. Uh, and that seems to be like I said, accurate to how he was in in real life. And also early on, he does meet the uh, uh, Nishi, the the Olympian. They Kind of both were familiar with each other's reputations, but I don't think they had met before, if they had, maybe only briefly. They they just kind of click as people who have both been to the States, people who are both educated and just kind of well-respected, whose reputations preceded them to this island. And what we haven't really hit on yet is... The whole idea that everyone knows this is pretty much a lost cause and we've come here to die yeah. even when they're first arriving. So this this general who's in his 50s, well-respected, this former Olympian who's here to, to lead the tank division, they basically, without saying it, know they're going to die here.
1: Right, and especially... Even if when they first got to the island, they thought maybe there was a chance, once they find out, um, which is like right at the beginning of the movie, that there is going to be no naval support or air support because all the, you know, basically their entire fleet was destroyed and any aircraft that they had got pulled back to mainland Japan. Once everybody finds that out, everybody knows they're screwed. They make a point of showing it like on all of the leaderships, like the higher ups faces, like, oh man, we are like, we are here to die.
0: Yeah, I mean, that that is accurate, that there was no chance that the Americans were going to lose this battle. Like, it just, the Japanese were, like we see in the movie, low on food, low on ammunition. Now, they were definitely bunkered in well and had these hidden, hidden you know, the hidden artillery. And it was just, you know, it was very well fortified. But the Americans had, they were uncontested in the air. We had the yep. naval bombardments supporting the infantry. And it was just, and the and overwhelming number, like, it was just... There was no way the Americans lose, and if anything, it was a little bit of a Japanese Alamo, which I didn't actually see that comparison made anywhere online here. But just they, they held out way longer than expected. What was it something like they expected the Americans to win in five days, and it actually took a few weeks? Is that I can't find the numbers here just now, but it was it was over a month. It was like 30, okay, 30 yeah. something days. Yeah, exactly. And it was supposed to be it was supposed to be five. And so on, on the island there was there was initially twenty one thousand Japanese. Only two hundred and sixteen ended up being taken prisoner. Two hundred and sixteen. Yes.
1: Whoa.
0: Yes. Out of twenty-one thousand. Now they That's do a crazy yeah, stat, and they do say that some of the remainder were maybe kind of held out after it was over, and so. But yes, only two hundred sixteen were officially taken prisoner of twenty-one thousand on the island. So just just kind of ridiculous loss there. But again, that was kind of what was going on everywhere. And the reason they couldn't get resources is because when, well, of course, as we'll see, cause let's see, this was in February and March of 1945. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, they're getting ready to start bombing mainland Japan and the Japanese didn't want to waste any resources on a lost cause thinking they were going to need all those resources for an American invasion of homeland Japan. Like, like you said, everyone, including the
1: Americans thought was inevitable if we were going to get them to submit. And, like, the really bad thing for the guys on the island is, like, even if you wanted to leave, no ship is coming to pick you up. Right. You are hundreds of miles from anywhere else. Yes. Okay, so, yeah,
0: so the, yeah, the plot of the movie, then, is pretty straightforward. It's the Japanese preparing for the battle, and then with, oh, I don't even know, about 45 minutes to go, the Americans show up, we see the battle, it's definitely horrific, and you just kind of definitely go through the whole war as hell kind of thing with just the catastrophic loss of life. And it's just kind of a depressing film. And and they do kind of flash back to uh, Watanabe's character in America, where they ha- show him receiving a, a weapon, uh, a
1: sidearm pistol. Is any of that accurate? I couldn't find that incident in particular. Well, I meant not necessarily the, the actual incident of him getting the, you know, being given the, the 1911, but was was he actually sent to america like as like in an official military capacity I mean, obviously yes it's true he spent time in america you know but it was it was for an actual military thing
0: yeah so so yeah let's uh because because the plot of the movie is pretty pretty straightforward it's just preparing for a battle and then losing the battle so let's go ahead and talk about uh this character now so Kira biashi i'm just gonna assume that was spot on so uh, kind of like what we see in the movie where they they obviously show him writing letters but then he's also don't they also show him like writing poetry or something in the or talking about poetry at one point in the in the film
1: uh i don't remember poetry i remember him i remember him drawing he did a lot of like sketching, oh yes drawings and stuff. okay yeah that's right he was
0: sketching so that's kind of who he was so he, when he was young he was actually very good in like poetry and, and writing and and was was into literature and even thought about becoming a journalist, and his teachers kind of persuaded him to join the military. Again, nationalistic pride in Japan at this time was through the roof. And this actually even kind of dates back to... We talked about when we were doing Battleship Potemkin, how the Japanese had beat the Russians to kind of enter the world stage. Well, Japan kind of, end of the 19th century and early 20th century, was developing this very, very high opinion of itself. I think we probably talked about in the Ip Ip Man episode. We kind of were talking about that a little bit as well. And they kind of just saw themselves as the best people on Earth. And by golly, it was time we get ours and do something about it. And even and i've probably mentioned it before on on various episodes when we've been in japan before but the simple red dot on the japanese flag it's the sun this is the land of the rising sun so they see it too as on the whole planet the first people who get the sun every day are the japanese and we're having these military successes and we're you know becoming more modernized and and we're kind of badass at it
1: and so egos were high right and the the evidence was on their side they're like yeah we're like kind of the new best country in the world and the yeah. evidence was on their side like they're they're beating russia right. they're beating china they're taking right. on the americans you know they're doing all this expansion so it's like why would you why would you attack the americans it's like cuz they thought they were invincible uh, i think yep. we
0: can kind of relate with uh overconfident arrogance and all those kinds of <laughs> things and you know maybe when we were going into vietnam you know a few decades after this so anyway so you can see how this young student who's good at writing and and interested in all that kind of stuff gets kind of coaxed into joining the military for kind of pride of his country and yes in 1928 he was sent to washington dc and then kind of spent a couple years and it was all part of it was like military research so so the united states had no reason to think japan a rival at this point we're just kind of too far apart to ever be in anybody's each other's way and so he spent a couple years just kind of learning military and industrial things and just kind of seeing how they did things in the united states to kind of take that information back to japan and kiribayashi even kind of later mentioned yeah i was in the united states for three years when i was a captain the americans taught him how to drive because he was really into cars and stuff and he thought it was interesting to see you know the connection between the military and industry um, he went to detroit and saw how they were doing things up there yeah he was he was here as far as the specific incident in the movie hard to say but he went all over it looks like he was you know hanging out at harvard at one point and just yeah he spent three years in the united states and it's very realistic that he would have had a conversation or a dinner similar to what we see in the movie, where they gift him with that pistol. Because yeah, then it was you know he's then back in Japan for a decade before Pearl Harbor ever happens. So a lot a lot a lot went down in that in that time. But yes, and then he so yeah in the as far as his demise in the movie, he kills himself kind of right. Oh yes, yeah, so yeah he shoots himself because again it's the whole the honor of suicide to avoid capture and all that. That's what happens in the movie. In real life, we don't know what happened. His body was never actually recovered. So it's just obviously assumed he died in in the battle. And there's various theories on where exactly he might have died. Here's one other note I wanted to mention on Nishi, the Olympian. Because everyone knew this was a lost cause, there was actually a big push by the Americans to get Nishi in particular to surrender. They're like, because he was a famous Olympic athlete, that the Americans yeah. knew they were about to kill. They're like, please, please surrender. We want to save your life. We don't want you right. to die for this cause. And he basically just ignored them. It, it sounds like the message probably did get through. And he was just kind of too proud. I and mean, again, we don't know exactly what was going through his mind. But the one other thing worth mentioning here would be, and again, I don't know how to say this as well, but the Kempeitai? Tai? Oh, uh,
1: the yeah. Ke- kem- tai. Kempeitai. Tai? Yeah, yeah. I want to say they're like the Gestapo, but in Japan. Correct. That's what I found as well. Yeah. Only without all the like Jew-hating stuff.
0: Yes. Oh, it sounds like from a ruthless standpoint, they were every bit as ruthless. And kind of just honestly, probably because there isn't the latent or not blatant the, the blatant racism associated with it, their atrocities seem to be just kind of ignored. And I don't necessarily have the specifics, but just kind of in general terms, it sounds like these guys had a reputation for being. Every bit as ruthless and violent and cruel when they were going about doing their things in in Asia. Yes, very very much the Japanese Gestapo. So in the movie, we meet one character who it, it was part of this group. So where his basically his uh, fellow soldiers assume he's like kind of a oh like a narc or a plant or basically someone set there to spy on them and report back on when they're not you know, doing what they should be doing. Because basically, these would be the guys who, if you were disloyal to Japan, or even if you were a Chinese person in land occupied by Japan, they might arrest you for that. That would be these guys for, you know, undermining the cause. So when this guy is there on Iwo Jima, some of the other soldiers are skeptical about his presence. But we learned in the film that he had been kicked out for basically showing mercy. Now, but again, though, that specific incident, I couldn't find anything about. And I don't know who all was there. And it's very possible that someone in that was there. But... Honestly, our sources are kind of almost too broad to find a lot of these little details. These are things based on letters. It's very realistic that something like this did happen. It's just not right. a big enough of a thing to be written about on the internet, unless you you,
1: you you'd have to get really into the writing of this movie and the actual letters they used as their source material. So the, you brought up the uh, the Kempeitai, which reminded me of well, and we were talking about you know atrocities in the Pacific theater. Um, the Kenpei Tai was originally was the uh, the unit in charge of Unit 731, which is kind of like, well, it was a place where they did, uh, it was a, a biological and chemical weapons research, like R&D unit that the, uh, the Japanese had. Um, and the reason that it's so uh, infamous to this day is because they experimented on humans.
0: Yes, okay. A lot of
1: prisoners of war. Yes. Yeah, I mean, stories... Of stuff that happened there, just as, if not in some cases more so, terrifying and just brutal as the uh, Nazi concentration camp stories from okay, Auschwitz yes, or yes. you know anywhere else. Yeah, and um, a lot of the uh, scientists, including the general in charge of it, Shiro Ishii, uh, they actually they got immunity from war crimes because they agreed to turn over all of their findings all the the data from the research oh wow. so at the end of the war they told the allies hey we did all this terrible stuff and tested all these you know chemical and biological weapons on humans but if you don't hang us for war crimes we'll give you all of our data and the allies said that sounds like fair trade to us <sighs> wow science in
0: exchange for justice although i'm also not a death penalty person so i guess if they i would hope they still got imprisoned i guess but so, yeah, I was kind of seeing hints of that as well, that they were they were bad. So, the island itself, Iwo Jima, lies about 750 miles south of Tokyo, and the first Europeans kind of stumbled across it in the 1700s. So, even like Captain James Hook, who was famous for exploring the Pacific and kind of all over the world, he charted it in 1779, and it was called Sulphur Island. Because this is, you know, just like a lot in this this big ring of fire around the Pacific, a lot of these are kind of that, and even in the movie, it looks like that volcanic ash that we're kind of seeing them run through. So it's definitely a volcanic island. And I don't know if it specifically smells like sulfur, but the, the name is is apt for a volcanic island. And the, the Japanese Iwo Jima is kind of loosely from that. So it's, it is roughly speaking the, the Japanese for sulfur island, but... The language is complicated and I don't fully understand, but roughly speaking, Iwo Jima is Japanese for Sulphur Island. Okay, and then the U.S. occupied Iwo Jima until 1968, so another 20-some years before returning it to Japan. Oh, uh, I thought this was interesting too. So in November of 2015, Iwo Jima was placed first on a list of dangerous volcanoes, and they're basically thinking that there's a one in three chance that... Uh, it'll erupt this century and that's about all i had any
1: final thoughts before we kick it to next week well i i just kind of i wanted to bring up the island hopping campaign as a whole it involved obviously all of the uh military services um, but is holds a particularly special place in the history um, of the marine corps of which you were a part yes and iwo jima specifically the national marine corps War Memorial uh in virginia is also called you know the iwo jima memorial because it depicts the marines raising the american flag on mount suribachi which is a photo that i'm sure everyone has seen
0: yes yes the famous flag raising on iwo jima yeah
1: right even if you don't necessarily know hey that's you know marines raising a flag on mount suribachi you've seen the picture before
0: is that the memorial on the north end of arlington there in virginia
1: yeah okay i was there last summer i saw that yeah yeah okay yeah, so that's uh, it's it's also called the Iwo Jima, like people call it the Iwo Jima Memorial, right? You know, because that's that's what it depicts. Um, there's also uh, a ship named the USS Iwo Jima. It's an amphibious assault ship, so you know the, the Marines are on that all the time. I also wanted to bring up, so there's a Wikipedia page, a whole Wikipedia page that's just Medal of Honor recipients from the Battle of Iwo Jima. Oh wow. So there were 22 Medals of Honor awarded to Marines on the island, uh, 27 total for military personnel, but 22 just for Marines. And that's over a quarter of all the Medals of Honor awarded to all Marines in all of World War II were on Iwo Jima. Hmm. Oh, and it's also the location where John Baslone died. So he was awarded the Medal of Honor for actions on Guadalcanal in the Solomon Islands, he went back to the United States because he, you know, hey, you kind of you did your duty, you know, you got the Medal of Honor, go back and sell war bonds. Oh so right. He came back to the United States for a few years, sold war bonds, and then decided I don't want to be here anymore, doing this stuff while there's still Marines fighting. So he went back to the Pacific Theater and then landed on Iwo Jima and uh, he was killed there and he was awarded the Navy Cross uh, for his actions. Wow. On Iwo Jima. So. Any um, Marine Corps base will have probably something named after John Basilone. on uh, on Camp Pendleton, where I was stationed. There was, you know, the the main road or one road on the base is Basilone Road. Hmm. So, yeah, a lot of Marine Corps history on, on Iwo Jima as well.
0: No, well, it's interesting. I, I wouldn't have thought about it being like the pinnacle of marine achievement of the 20th century kind of thing, which but that makes sense that that's still something they take pride in. Very cool so that does wrap up world war ii for us we will kind of throw a little button with a bonus episode maybe here this friday but next week we are moving on to 1947 with some norwegians hanging around in the south pacific so we'll kind of get a different part of the world with the 2012 film Kontiki.